Good morning. So I'm still going to offer you um, the talk that I originally wrote for today, um, but I wrote it uh, a while back, and so in light of recent events, um, I'm going to start first um, with a statistic, an invitation, and a famous Zen story that I hope will help segue into what I originally planned to say. Does that sound good? Okay, thank you. First, the statistic. <clears throat> um, I got this from the Washington Post about four days ago. There have been over 200 mass shootings so far in 2022 in the country of the United States. Mass shootings have averaged more than one day, one per day this year. Not a single week in 2022 thus far has passed without at least four. So since I wrote that two days ago, there have been two. So next is my invitation to you. Change your life. We're at a Zen center, that seems like a fair ask. Buddhism, Buddhism has been asking us to do that for 2,500 years. And you only have one that you can change. You cannot change the life of the person sitting next to you. Your life is the only life. And it is the only life that you can change. So please, in the external world, with your behavior, my invitation to you is vote, of course. Vote with your votes. Vote with your voice. Vote with your dollars. How we show up in the external world matters. It has a huge impact. It has a huge influence. Please, of course. If you say that something matters to you, perhaps something like nonviolence, act like it. Change the parts of your life that are not in accord with that value. You can do that. You can do that. Use your influence to make a difference. If your external life is not in alignment with your values, change your external life. And because this is Buddhism, let's get internal. My internal invitation to you is to remember that the first noble truth of Buddhism says that all of us are regularly shot at and all of us regularly shoot. That's my translation this morning. You will not find that in the Pali Canon. <laughs> it seems this morning like a fair translation. And so, since mine is the only life that I can change, I am required to ask myself, what are my weapons? When the great big hurt comes to me, and it does, 
What weapons do I turn to? I have many. How do I use them? Who do I use them on? Myself? Others? Both? I must be committed to seeing my own weapons. And I must be committed to seeing my own anger that gives rise to my wanting to use them. We must become aware of and understand and legislate our own inner hatred and judgment and all of the suffering underneath them that so needs our attention and our care. If your internal life is not in alignment with your values, change your internal life. Okay, finally, a famous Zen story. Um, I'm saying famous because I've heard it several times. <laughs> I do suspect many of you have heard this as well. I'm reading you this story. It is very short, but for today's purposes, it describes an enlightened response to heartbreak and tragedy. It goes like this. Satsu was one of Hakuin's more famous lay disciples. When her granddaughter died, she was overcome with grief. A neighbor rebuked her, noting how she had Hakuin's Certificate of Enlightenment. So however could she be carried away like that? Satsu replied, don't you see how my tears are better than a priest's chance? My tears remember every child who has died. And she concluded by saying, this is me at this moment. Satsu was one of Hakuin's more famous lay disciples. When her granddaughter died, she was overcome with grief. A neighbor rebuked her, noting how she had Hakuin's certificate of enlightenment. How could she be carried away like that? Satsu replied, don't you see how my tears are better than a priest's chance? My tears remember every child who has died. This is me at this moment. Can you see in that, can you hear in that, Satsu's profound acceptance of what is? Can we see her compassion? Can we see the deep wisdom in her awareness of her interconnectedness with all life? Can we see how deeply she understands impermanence and how stable she is? Can we feel for ourselves this morning, right now? This is me at this moment. 
Can we see her choice not to kill her grief, but to meet it and to feel it and to express it? The first Buddhist precept is, I vow not to kill, but to nurture life. That is exactly where Satsu is. In this story, she's killed nothing, including her own heartbreak. Can you feel that in the story? This is me at this moment. As a Buddhist, she is aware that life includes suffering. She is also aware that the aspiration of her practice is not to kill her suffering. That's just more violence. Her aspiration is to heal and to transform her suffering through her acceptance, her loving awareness. And that is exactly what she demonstrates. I love that story. I really love it. I want to be like her. I want to be like Satsuma. And so my aspiration is to meet my suffering in all of its forms with compassion and wisdom so that its seeds are transformed. My aspiration is to relate to my suffering so that I do not act it out. My aspiration is to relate to my suffering so that I can heal. My aspiration is to relate to my suffering in such a way that I can become kind. And kindness this morning seems a fair metric for healing. It seems true to say this morning that we know we are healed when we are kind. We know we are healed when we are kind. And I feel confident in saying to you this morning that if all you live from the rest of your life is the two-word mantra, be kind, you'll reach enlightenment. So, I hope that works out to be a good segue into the talk that I had originally written. So, the talk I originally wrote. For those of you who are in uh, the Zendo this morning, you have, I hope, someplace near you, um, the program this morning that has on the cover of it a image, a photograph taken of a famous statue of Maitreya Bodhisattva. For those of you um, who are at home or in transit who are watching via Zoom, you have in the chat this very same image. And what I have next to me here has been on my wall for about 15 years. It's a Xerox. Xerox. <laughs> it's time to play Guess the Age of the Speaker. Over 20? You would be correct. This is a color copy made on paper. There used to be a place called Kingo's. Um, I took this from 
I took this from a big color book I got from the library of Mrs. I rode my horse all the way downtown. <laughs> so I was looking at a big color book on Buddhism, which I now forget the title of, and I wish I could credit them. And this was one of the pages, and it's just a close-up of the image you have at home there, the image you have. This is a close-up of just the face of this statue. And at that time, this is quite a while ago, and what did I say 15 years? I bet you it's older than that. I bet you I've had this in my wall for 20 years. I got to frame it Target back when I used to work in the stock room there for three bucks or something. Um, the photograph really moved me. The image really moved me. And what was especially moving to me was the, and I wish I could remember word for word, but the um, little caption underneath, you know, that says what this is a photograph of. They said, this is um, Moroku Bodhisattva pondering the salvation of humankind. This is the expression of Moroku Bodhisattva, whose destiny is to come someday to be Maitreya Buddha, right? This is Moroku Bodhisattva pondering the salvation of humankind. So I'm going to read about the statue. You have, if you're ever in Korea, go see the statue. I'm going to read what... Um, I forget what website, I think it's the museum. This is a picture of seated Maitreya, a sculpture that is in the National Treasure of Korea. It is issued the number 83 in the list of National Treasures of Korea. This statue is believed to have been made in the early 7th century. It is approximately three feet and one inch in height, made of bronze, and was at one point plated in gold. The statue is widely acknowledged to be one of the finest Buddhist sculptures ever produced, and it is considered a masterpiece of Korean art. It is now housed at the National Museum of Korea and is one of the most popular exhibits in the museum. National treasure number 83, although priceless, is insured for an estimated 500 billion won, which is about 50 million US dollars, and is the single most expensive national treasure of the country. So there you go, a little three-foot statue um, of that little rascal sitting cross-legged with her hand on her chin. That's it. If you can see it in front of you, it's actually a pretty, pretty plain image, right? No opulent robes, no crazy big halo, no dragons or um, otherworldly beings surrounding her or him, or them, or it. It's a bodhisattva, you know, they switch around, they do whatever they want. But this is a very popular Mahayana Buddhist image. <clears throat> and roughly speaking, uh, Moroku is a savior figure. We don't think much about having saviors in Buddhism, but oh, baby, they're there. If you look, you have no problem finding them. The reason she's considered to be a savior figure is because according to Mahayana Buddhist cosmology, she is going to be the next Buddha, Maitreya Buddha. And she is going to come in 5.6 billion years. How they know that, I do not know. Where that number comes from, I do not know. I suspect it has symbolic import and it's not considered to be. Um, the world that I woke up to this morning and the world that I um, talked about 
the suffering in the world that I talked about at the beginning of this talk leads me to think 5.6 billion years is not going to cut it. Kiddo, you got to come a lot sooner than that. I'm thinking later today would be about perfect. But that is part of our cosmology. So she is a savior figure, and in 5.6 billion years, she is going to come. So she is often depicted, um, Maroka Bodhisattva, as she is in this picture. And if you do a search for her online, you'll see lots of variations of something very similar to this. Um, for a long time, Tim in his office, for those of you who have been up to see Tim in his office, had a uh, pencil drawing of this statue on his wall for years and years and years and years. Maybe it's still there. I don't know. But she is often depicted gently touching her face while pondering the salvation of humankind. No meditation posture. No fancy mudra, no prayer beads, no power objects, just her touching her face with great tenderness and wondering how best to help. She's a bodhisattva, so of course her job is the complete liberations of the complete liberation of all beings everywhere throughout space and time. Kind of a big job. It's a full day's work. Um, and although Mahayana Buddhist cosmology considers that an inevitability, of course, everybody makes it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's already done. Still, the other half of that is look out the window see the dumpster fire and go, wow, we got a long way to go, because that is true. We are perfect and we could use some improvement. Flip, 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 right? That's one of the things we're expected to hold in Zen, right? So she has a job to do, a very real job to do. The face part of her body is relaxed and serene with the calm smile of a Buddha. A postural expression of her body is upright, but not rigid. The lean is ever so slightly towards and not away. So if you have the image in front of you, look at it again, because all of it is there. That's all I'm talking about today is this picture. This is it. <laughs> all of it is there. The next Buddha, the current Bodhisattva, 5.6 billion years, the promise of universal salvation is all there. Also present is the serene and calm smile, the gentle touching, the holding of the flesh. Does it seem significant to you that she's touching her body? does to me. Already present is her uprightness, the softness, the kindness, and the incline toward. The incline toward. The way she is touching her own face gives away her plan for that inevitable universal salvation. She's telling us what she's going to do, and she's telling us what we get to do. It's all there. Her plan is gentle, steady, consisting, 
consistent touching and holding of humanity. I'll say that again. Her plan is gentle, steady, consistent touching and holding of humanity. That's how it's going to get done. Simple, kind, compassionate presence. I want us to see this morning that this is her plan for how this will happen. And at the very same time, this is her plan's fruition. Happening now, complete. The universal salvation isn't the future. It isn't yet to happen. It's happening now. The kind touching is it. It's a hard sell, isn't it? I can see it in your faces. <laughs> it is a hard sell. I feel that too. I feel that too. It's a super Zen thing I just said, didn't I? Just say a super Zen thing. It's true. I'm not making that up. That's the party line. That's, that's our tradition. It is yet to come. Look at the dumpster fire. Also, it's here. Oh, that's where we catch. That's where we constrict. I understand that. I get that. The kind touching is it. How do we know? Because if someone was pondering the salvation of humankind, we would expect them, at least I would expect them, to look a little bit more like Rodin's famous The Thinker. You guys know The Thinker, right? Oh, bent over, obviously anguished. It's a brilliant statue. It's brilliant, right? You can feel it. Oh my God, look at that guy. Wow. The Thinker. Oh, there's a whole talk there. Aaron, you'll have to write the talk about it and then give it to whoever's next. Okay. That's what I would expect, especially from a Buddhist point of view, because we have the first noble truth that says all is suffering. It's suffering right now. It is suffering. It is suffering. It is suffering. And so pondering the salvation of humankind, you would imagine, would be an anguished state to be in. That would make sense. If her brow was furrowed, if she was leaning over, if her head was covered in sweat, if she was obviously anguished, if there was tension in her shoulders, if there was, can you feel it? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. She should be in a really rough spot if she's contemplating the fate and the salvation of humankind. She should be anguished at the present state of humankind and anxious about how to help them. She should be fearful about whether or not she or they will be successful. We would expect an image of someone pondering the state of the world to be fretful, sad, angry, and someone in profound suffering. Moroku is a bodhisattva, a being of pure compassion, and she is none of those things. In fact, it's obvious at a glance that despite there being very real suffering right now, in this very instant, Moroku's contentment is not 5.6 billion years away. Nor is her confidence at the successful completion of her vow. Moroku's vow, like yours, is self 
fulfilling. It is happening, which is how she knows it will happen, how she knows it has already happened. She knows it will happen because it is already happening in total. A moment of perfect love isn't incomplete love. Even though we imagine moment is limited, right? How long did that moment last? Three seconds? Five seconds? Ten seconds? Forty years? How long was your love? How long did that moment last? We imagine, because we imagine that time is limited, that a moment of something must be incomplete. Because it's not all. Because there were other moments that didn't contain it, we imagine. Does this sound great? It's funny though, right? Like it took me half an hour to drive here this morning. 30 minutes. That's a finite amount of time. But I arrived here in total. I completely arrived. A moment of love, which is an experience you've had. Right? This is an experience you have had, a moment of love. I'm talking about big love, not french fries. Right? French fries are awesome, right? but you're not talking about big love here. A moment of love is complete. You understand that's complete love. Right? It isn't lacking anything. Does that make sense? I'm using love because that tends to work in this kind of setting to get us to wrestle with our ideas of where the limits are and how past and future work and that kind of stuff. A moment of perfect love isn't incomplete love. Love isn't limited. And certainly from a Zen point of view, moment isn't limited. To make an offering now is to make an offering in all moments. To make an offering in one temple is to make an offering in every temple. Moroku's Buddhahood is not 5.6 billion years away, nor is her salvation, nor is ours. And this is a tough message, and so I need help, and so I'm gonna to refer to Dogen because anybody who sits on this platform who gets in trouble has to refer to Dogen to get them out of trouble. That's what we do. <laughs> That is what we do. This passage from Dogen could have been written by Moroku as a message to all of us. <clears throat> I have quoted this passage, I bet you, 20 times from the Dharma seat, maybe more. We used to have part of it um, on the bell. Years ago, we had a little laminated piece of paper that had part of this quote on the bell, some of you might remember. Very, uh, very famous passage from A.H. Dogen. <clears throat> when even just one person at one time sits in Zazen, they become imperceptibly one with each and all the myriad things and permeate completely all time so that within the limitless universe throughout past, future, and present, they are performing the eternal and ceaseless work of guiding beings to enlightenment. Only this is not limited to the practice of sitting alone. Here comes the big part. The sound that issues from the striking of emptiness is an endless and wondrous voice that resounds before and after the fall of the hammer. I normally think of that bell as starting to make a racket when somebody hits it with the hammer. 
Bing. I didn't hear it and now I do and it's going to resonate afterwards because that's how time works. This is a Zen center. Stuff gets groovy here. Dogen is very, very clear. The sound that issues from the striking of emptiness is an endless and wondrous voice that resounds before and after the hammer. Stop imagining that your moments are limited. Stop imagining that your influence has edges. Stop imagining that your ripples run out. That you live in a finite universe because none of those things are true. This does tie in with the stuff at the beginning, doesn't it, actually? If I read the headlines and my heart breaks and I just sit with that heartbreak and I just hold it really, really tenderly, something incredible just happened. Because one human being decided to meet suffering with kindness. Does anybody even need to know that I did that? No. Are the ripples of that action resounding before and after it even happened? Do they go out to everybody? Do they affect everything? Yeah, they do. One more person on one day chose not to pick up the weapon, instead decided to care for the thing that made him want to reach for the weapon. That's what this room is for. That's what this room has been for for 50 years. That's what Buddhism is for. That's what the room of Buddhism has been for for 2,500 years. And the beautiful, amazing thing about this promise that Dogen is giving us, this, this promise that Moroku is giving us, is you get to do it. It's participatory. You are that. You really, really, I promise, don't have to wait 5.6 billion years. You just don't. From the very, very beginning, Buddhism was like, no, we're not limited to one people or one time or one culture. We're not chosen. We're not special. It's not about any of those things. Everybody gets to do this. All you got to do is just sit down and go, how do I feel? How do I feel? It matters. It really, really, really matters. I know anger is in there. Of course it is. You don't have to be ashamed of that. You're a human being. What you do get to do, though, is go, oh, my God, I can totally meet that. I can totally go, oh, my God, you're here. I understand why you're here. It's okay that you're here. Tell me your story. You've got something for me, don't you? Come on, let's do this. I'm making it sound like it's easy. It's not. I'm making it sound like it's simple. It is. It's super simple. It's exactly what I just said it is. It's exactly what Fukan's Zengi said it is. It's exactly what they're teaching in the intro class, class across the hall right now. Just check in with yourself. How are you doing? Can you care for that with kindness? That's it. But can you also sort of feel, especially when you step outside of it just a little, or if you're watching somebody else across the room do it, if you had psychic powers, you could imagine somebody is enraged today because they've been hurt so badly and the world feels so unfair and their heart is so constricted and they decided to sit down. You'd look, for, you'd look at them across the room and go, oh my God, that's Buddha. That's Buddha doing something impossible and amazing, right? Consciousness, the highest, bravest, kindest, most compassionate, wisest part of that person said, sit down, I'll pay attention to you. And so all of their humanity got a chance to rush forward and say, I'm so scared and I'm so angry and I'm so hurt and I'm so ashamed and I'm so lost and I'm so confused. And the Buddha part of that person said, yeah, I got it. Keep going, I'm right with you. I can hold that, I can hold that. It's okay, I'm right here. Can you feel that? That's not complicated, that's simple. 
That is not easy. That is hard. That's why we need organizations like this. That's why we need rooms like this. That's why we have traditions like this. That's why we have knuckleheads like A.H. Dogen saying crazy stuff about time and space. Try to inspire us. Sit down and do it. It matters. You can change the world. So do I believe this stuff? I don't know. I live somewhere between hope and belief. It's easy to hope it's true. I for sure got that. No problem. Believe it? Yeah, sometimes. And sometimes my heart gets small and I forget and I go, what am I doing again? That can't be right. What's he talking about, a hammer? It sounds before you hit it. Come on, man. <laughs> Does it really matter that I took care of my anger for five breaths? Does that really matter? It's easy to forget. It's, it's easy to stop feeling it. So maybe we might think that Moroku Bodhisattva, our lovely image today, she's our hero today, right? This little picture. You get to take her with you. You get to download her, put her on your desktop, you know, print her out, put her in a frame. You get a target for $3.99 and put her on your wall. <sighs> we can maybe think of her this morning if we're having a rough morning. We can maybe think of her as our patron saint of hope. Maitreya Buddha, Moroku Bodhisattva, is certainly the great archetypal exemplar of kindness. Perhaps we might think of her as the patron saint of those of us who have bodies. If you happen to be an embodied person, she might be your patron saint, especially when you are consciously practicing mindfulness of the body. Perhaps especially when we're consciously practicing mindfulness of a self, or a personhood that is filled with pain, grief, fear, or anger. If that's one of your practices is mindfulness of a person who is hurting, she might be really helpful for you. So we can circle back now, because I'm almost done. We can circle back to Satsu. The enlightened and grieving grandmother. We can see how her response to her grief, just to feel it and cry, was an enlightened response. To acknowledge the truth of what is, her great wrenching loss, to care for her own experience by expressing it, relating to it, allowing it. For her to feel her connection to the great suffering of others. She is alive. She is aware. She is feeling. She is compassionate. She is not separate and nothing is killed. Instead, everything is met by Satsu with awareness Everything is included, and everything is transformed. So she is an example of Buddha. Moroku is also an example of Buddha. 
You know what I'm going to say, don't you? You are also an example of Buddha. I don't know how that lands with you. I can imagine all sorts of responses to that. It's a lot. But thanks to your generosity, as a Buddha, we now have the recipe for both hope and the recipe for how to meet a life often filled with suffering. Touch it with kindness. Something you have just done, something you know how to do, something you have done before, something you're at least open to committing to practice. Touch what comes with kindness. And so we now have 7.5 billion people to practice on. Wow, that's good. We got lucky there, lots to work on. Good, good, good. And we also have 5.6 billion years to practice it. So don't bother setting your Google alert. It doesn't go out that far. You have plenty of opportunities for practice and you have lots of time to do it. And since that's too weird and since that's too abstract, let's just do what Satsu does. Let's just do what Moroku does. Let's just do it now. I am grateful to you for hanging in there with me today. Um, I know this wasn't necessarily a feel good, put it on repeat kind of talk. It wasn't necessarily a very easy one to give, um, but I'm grateful for your um, attention and I'm grateful for your willingness to go along for the ride. And thank you. And uh, we got time today. So if folks um, have stuff they'd like to offer, thoughts or, oh. <laughs> That young man in the corner, Ted. <laughs> Thank you, Ted. <laughs> oh, dear. He passed the koan, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Do you remember that little, you remember the verse being Taped. Yeah, that was it was there for a long time, right? Yeah, it probably got lost in the move. I yeah, at some point disappeared. Every time I rang the bell though I read that I went, Oh man, this is a trippy place. <laughs> in all the best ways. Hi Deb, good morning. Okay, so she you know, many of the statues look very passive, she looks like she's about ready to get up and do something. Doesn't she look she's active? Like she's just just doing it. Yeah. It's amazing. Isn't it? And pretty that unusual. In that, right. That statue. I very, completely very agree sweet, with you. Very, you know, calm, but about ready to move. The forward <laughs> incline yeah. kind of gives it away, don't you think? But holding yourself back to it. Yeah. And it's unusual for Buddhists iconography, I think. Yeah. Um, in case you can't hear at home, Deb is just pointing out how the image really does look like Moroku is right on the edge of doing something. Right? The, the forward lean and the almost like, oh, I bet if I... There's a sense there that she's in almost a liminal, almost a liminal space between 
you know, the upright pondering and the more, right? Yeah, and Deb is right. Like, in terms of Buddhist iconography, anything being in motion is already like, whoa, they're not meditating? They're doing something? That's madness. <laughs> right? He got up and rang the bell? What is, he, what is going on over there? So, yeah, I actually think it's compelling visually for that very reason, that there's something you can feel. You can see the serenity, but you can feel the action underneath the surface. Yeah. Um, anybody else have anything they'd like to offer today? Yes, please. Well, I, I thank you for this talk because it was another reminder of the importance of emptying out so that you can receive. So the vibration happens because there is a container that's empty for the resonance. And I feel that in myself. That's why I come here. That's why I walk in the woods. That's why I float in the water. So that feeling of emptying out because so many times we can come up to the limit of our containers full and there's no resonance anymore. And it, it, it hurts. And then we can, it's hard to be kind. So thank you so much. You're making a lot of sense to me. Emptying, emptying out is a big part of what we do here to make room, to make more space. So true. That's like physically true, it feels to me. Because I can feel some of these stronger, afflictive emotions. My body gets smaller. I mean, I can feel it. You know, like it gets tense. Like my heart gets smaller. And blood pressure goes up and veins get tighter. You go, wow, I've actually physically gotten smaller. So to, to allow, I can expand, to hold, I can create more space. It's so important. So much a part of what we do. Randy. When I, when I first saw this title, I, I kind of thought maybe you were going to be talking about the evolution of life going back 5.6 billion years. And I, I, I think it's probably not that long, but, but I started thinking how many acts of kindness have led up to getting us to where we are, if you, if you interpret kindness broadly, all the way back to single cell organisms. And, and all the creatures and everything, and all the humans and primates and all those that led us to here we are. So it's been a lot of years getting us to where we are. Millions and millions of acts of kindness. Yeah, indeed. That's that would have been a good talk. Yeah, indeed. There's a big place for gratitude. Don't you think? That's kind of, that's what it feels like as you're saying that. I'm like, oh, I'm aware. That interconnectedness and my awareness of interconnectedness so often for me creates a sense of gratitude. It also creates a sense of responsibility. And that's kind of what we hit today. But it sure, it sure is touched by the fact that because this is, that is. Because you are, I am. And that's a powerful idea. So you know, without 5.6 billion years of kindness, we would not be here. Please. Um, yeah, I, I guess I've been reflecting on, on this lately, too, because I haven't had to make some, embarked on making some decisions in my life that I was getting, I had to contemplate it, and um, I was getting wrapped around in confusion, and it was decisions that was going to affect other people, too, which kind of added some intensity to it, because it was directly... Give me some reactions to that, and um, 
I was like doing it more with the intensity of the thinker. And, uh, <laughs> and I have this, the book Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and the pre, one of the previous owners wrote in it, see, see passage 77 on the front cover. And I, <laughs> I read it last week, and, and it ended with um, live with cause, live with cause and leave the results to the great laws of the universe, pass each day in peaceful contemplation. And I really love that. Um, so it's, it kind of goes with do, do the practice, but you know, whatever happens, kind of happens. But it also, I love the acknowledging that you have to do the contemplation, it's important, but there's a different way of doing it peacefully and enjoying it. So, kind of took the, the pressure off of not, you know, knowing, having not knowing, you know, you can't know for sure what's going to happen and kind of going with your values, you know, and I'm going to make this decision. Um, I don't know really what's going to happen, and I can peacefully contemplate what the best thing to do is. So it's made, made those decisions enjoyable. Good for you, Cole. It makes a lot of sense to me. That's a great book. That's, a, that's a kind of a fun, crazy one. It is. Yeah. And then not knowing makes me think of the self-emptying, you know, that we, you kind of empty it out before you can fill it up idea. Like, let, let me let go for a few minutes of my certainty about what's best here and what I think that I know. And you know, We spend a lot of time on that here, don't we? It feels right to me. Mm. I'm glad you made your decisions. Good for you. Thank you. Mm. All right, folks. Well, I tell you what, I will uh, turn things over to our uh, Doan. And um, thank you very much.